All right, you guys grab a seat, and uh, we will be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Give your attention to God's word as Missy reads it for us. First Timothy 3, 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overse- overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Thank you. Thank you, Missy. Let's pray together, and then we'll see what the word has to say for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. Would you use it now, we pray, to change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been around Trinity for any period of time, then you know that we are in the midst of what's called particularization. It's a fancy word that just means that our mission church is becoming a real church. Kind of like Pinocchio, becoming a real boy. We're, we're taking on our own leadership from within our congregation. And what that means for us is that we, therefore, need to nominate our elders and our deacons. And so over the last several weeks, we've looked at what that means. We've said that there are two metaphors in Scripture for the word servant or for the word uh, uh, elder or deacon. The word shepherd is always used as a metaphor for an elder. The word servant is always used as the metaphor for what a deacon is and does. And then last week, we looked at what does it mean uh, to be submissive to those men, that, the word that's probably the most hated word in the English language today. What does that mean to be submissive? Are they special? No, of course not. But what does it mean to obey and to sit under the authority of those the Holy Spirit calls to lead the church? And so today we look at the final week of what it means to have elders and deacons rule over us in preparation for us to nominate our elders and our deacons. That's the insert that you got in your bulletin this morning about which I'll speak in just a moment. What do you need to know about electing, about nominating your elders and your deacons? All right. 
when I was growing up, I never learned to change the oil in my car. I know, it's kind of embarrassing. And I always took it to somebody else, and they just did it. So they would change the oil in my car, and whenever my car would break down, I would just get, it's a car, it's supposed to work. I would get frustrated, and I would get upset. I would, I would feel entitled. It's a car. This stuff is, you turn the engine, and it works. And then I took my car just down the street to Craig, and Craig showed me a few things about my car. He took me and he showed me under the hood what, uh, uh, how it works. He showed me, for example, what your alternator does and what your, um, what your carburetor does. He showed me how the car functions. In other words, he lifted the hood to show me what was underneath it. Many of you have not been to church in a long, long time, and we are so glad you're here. And church government is a mystery to you. It's a wizard of Oz. You don't really understand it. You don't get it. You don't know how does a pastor become a pastor? Who holds him accountable? How are the elders held accountable? And you know what? Many of you have been to church for many, many years, and you also don't know the answer to that question. You've always left it for other people to do it. Many of you grew up in the church. Your parents just chose the pastor. They just chose the elders. You just let others do it. And so for you also, church government is kind of a mystery. You don't really get it. You don't really understand. And this passage, in a sense, shows us what's under the hood. Paul opens the hood for young Timothy to show Timothy. Timothy, this is why elders matter, and these are the characteristics by which you should confirm the Holy Spirit's call in their life. So this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at 1 Peter. The theme of 1 Peter, I mean 1 Timothy, excuse me, the theme of 1 Timothy is that the gospel, when the gospel takes and you have an experience of grace, it leads to practical, visible, lasting change in the lives of people. Not rocket science. It leads to practical change. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy was a young, wet-behind-the-ears church planter of sorts, and he left him to continue on the work that Paul had begun in Ephesus. But in this context, in Ephesus, there were false teachers who were making their rounds. They were teaching things that you find, for example, in chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, or chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. They were showing that There was a strict kind of asceticism that you must live out to be a Christian. There was all kinds of speculation about what the end times are going to look like and whether you're in or you're out. There was greed. And so as these these false teachers begin to make the rounds, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, your job is to show people that the gospel changes their life, but you have to keep them centered on the gospel because the gospel will change you. If you're like me, sometimes it changes you very slowly, but it does inevitably lead to change in your life. And so, to shepherd the church in the midst of suffering, Paul lays out the qualifications for our elders. So here's the point of the sermon. Two two points, very quickly. Why do you need elders? And what qualities do you look for in confirming them? Why do you need them? And what qualities do you look for in confirming them? Okay, first, why do you need them? Ephesus was a port city on the west side of Asia. 
it had a highly held cultural value. They, most of the people there were middle class, upper middle class people. It was a growing area of the country. They had this huge marketplace. They called it an agora back then. It was this giant marketplace. And people would flock to the city from all around to do their shopping, to do their networking, to meet there. And there was this cultural pride about being an Ephesian. They held their cultural value very, very highly. Not only was our cultural value that was held in high esteem, but they also held very high a religious value. It was assumed in Ephesus that you were religious. There was a temple in Ephesus. It was the temple to Artemis. And some of you may remember from high school, you know, English, one of the English classes you learned about Greek mythology. Remember, Artemis was the sister, the daughter of Zeus, the sister of Apollo, right? Yeah, I didn't remember that either until I studied for the sermon. But she... She was in the royal family of the Greek gods, and the way that you honored Artemis, the way that the gods honored Artemis, was they would send meteorites to earth. They were trophies to Artemis, and so there was this huge sacred rock in Ephesus that they worshipped because they thought that this was the way that the gods were blessing Ephesus by sending a meteor in honor of Artemis, the one for whom they built this huge temple. And every year in the spring, everybody would come from near and far to celebrate Artemis. In Ephesus, there is a very, very thick religious culture. And not only that, but they held in high esteem their economic culture. It was a growing, thriving, expanding city. And people made lots of money in this city. There were silversmiths and bronzesmiths that would make things to worship Artemis by. All right. Does that city sound like any place you know? Like you do know that Owasso is one of the fastest growing areas in Oklahoma, right? And you do know that we are the Rams. We hold that in very, very high esteem. And you do know that there is, even though we're a suburban community, there is an extreme sense of pride in Owasso. That's why we're having the gathering on Maine every month. People are coming back to the city. We're trying to increase the city pride, just like the Ephesians did in Acts 19 and 20. There's a very thick religious culture in this city, isn't there? Right? It's very, very thick. In fact, when you come for a job with the city, I may have shared this story before, but one person came to work for the city, and they were asked, now what church do you go to? a very interesting question that could only really be asked in a place like Owasso. They also have a very, very high economic value, right? People, there's, a, it, there's the meeting of the white-collar, blue-collar here. We're expanding, we're growing. Listen, all of this makes for a very combustible sense of pride. And it's a, not a bad thing in itself at all. It's a wonderful thing to have these benefits to your community. Here's the point. In Ephesus, there were false teachers who crept in and they began to teach something different from the doctrines of grace. It was religious, yes, but it was an out-and-out pagan religion. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, in the midst of your pagan culture, you have to remember that there will be things that sound Christian that aren't. And you have to help call elders and deacons to hold people's feet to the fire to live out the purpose and mission of the church. In Owasso, I dare say, there is, there's false teaching. 
but it's not a sacred stone. It's not the temple of Artemis. I actually think that it's much, much more subtle. And I want to introduce you to two friends to help you understand what I mean. Let's say that Terry and Roger Johnson moved to Owasso. They're a young family. They have three kids. They've been married for, you know, eight years. They come to Owasso, and they get plugged in. And they go to all these different churches, and they're trying to figure out which one they want to get involved in. And as they listen to the preaching, as they listen to the way that people talk about the gospel, here's what they pick up. They pick up that the gospel is essentially being a moral person. That it's just the extension of the city of Owasso's character program. Like you go to church because it's the right thing to do. You want your kids to grow up and get out of high school without getting on drugs or getting pregnant. And you have therefore a successful life. And so people use the church as a kind of moral straitjacket to help straighten us out. To keep us, in a sense, hospitable to one another. To keep the peace. But there's nothing in much of what the Johnsons heard in the preaching and the teaching about the work and role of Jesus, except maybe at the very end of the sermon when there was an invitation. Now, in, in saying this, I'm not saying anything one way or the other about uh, other churches. I'm just trying to make a point about what we need to be about here. The Johnsons come to church, and what they tend to get, and what you can, if you're not careful, fall into even at a place like Trinity, is you tend to get the law over grace in our city and in our region. What do I mean? Many times we grew up in churches that had a very practical, how-to kind of message. And there perhaps is a role for that. But a how-to kind of message devoid of the gospel truth that centers around the personal work of Jesus and his work for us actually leads very subtly to an increased sense of guilt. The Bible says in Romans 7.10 that death and condemnation are a result of the law. The law has no power to provide what it commands. Like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reveal to you your inadequacy before the Lord. You cannot live out the Ten Commandments. In fact, Luther says you can't break any of them without also breaking the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. The law reveals to us our utter inadequacy and therefore our desperate need for Jesus to perform for us in his life and death what we as human beings could never do to get get ourselves right with God. In a list of do's, no matter how spiritual they may sound, divorced from the done of Christ's work is the same thing, is just as legalistic as a list of don'ts. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the Johnsons go to church. Heaven forbid they come here. And they hear all law preaching. Do this. Do that. Be Christ's hands and feet. But there it's devoid of anything about the work and person of Christ. What happens to Mrs. Johnson? What happens to Mr. Johnson is over time, they feel increasingly guilty and they leave church, not freed up because of what Jesus has done for them and how much he loves them, 
but they feel this increasing sense of burden that they yet again did not measure up. That is the preaching of the law without the preaching of the gospel. And a steady diet of all law and no gospel leads not to more empowered and effective living, but actually leads to more discouragement and less empowerment. Why? Because no matter what you call it, if it all depends on you, you do not have the gospel of grace. If it all depends on you, you feel like your relationship with God is this burden, like you have to always perform for him. I mean, that's miserable. Like, if I thought I had to, like, perform for my wife every day to make sure that, you know, I picked up my clothes and make sure that I, you know, pitched in around the house, it would be an utter burden to me. I can't use that as an excuse, but it would be a burden. It's just, she loves me because she loves me. I'm her husband, and she loves me. And it's unconditional. The same way the Father is toward you. He loves you because he loves And he wants you to live out what he's called you to do because of what he has done in calling you his son or his daughter. Mrs. Johnson hears the gospel, but it becomes this kind of wicked mixture of moralism and how-tos. And without the finished work of Jesus being proclaimed for her, do you know what the law only leads her to do? It leads her into more disobedience. Because she's conscious now of areas where she doesn't measure up in ways that she wasn't conscious of before she heard that sermon. That's what the law does. The law came, Romans 5.20, to increase trespass. That's what the whole of Romans 7 is about. Um, recently, Lauren and I got a gift for, uh, got a Wii, you know, one of these gifts where like, grandparents give you a gift for your kids. You know how that works? So we got a Wii given to me, but it was really for Andrew and Annie. And so we now have this Wii, and we made up a rule for them to say you have this much time on the Wii every, every day. And it's a new law for them. But you know what they do? They are aware of this law, but every waking minute after school, Andrew and Annie are like, can we play on the week? Can we play on the week? Can we use our time? Can we have it now? Please, 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 please. Why? Because they're aware now of a new opportunity. They're aware of a law that's been set in our house about how much time you can have. And therefore, they're always pushing against it as much as they can. Can we have more time, please? Can we now, can we now do it? It's the same way when you hear about the law in Scripture. You're aware. The law says, I would not have known not to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, Paul says. So, back to the Johnsons. Without the saving power of the gospel, we go in one of two ways with just the law preached to us. We either push to disobey because we're angry at at its judgments, or we get incredibly discouraged by our inability to keep it. And so we keep coming to church every Sunday, not out of a joyful gratitude for what Jesus has done, but kind of as a way to kind of relieve our guilt. You know what I mean? And we leave church with a good message, and therefore everything is better. Or we end up thinking ourselves completely righteous, apart from the righteousness that is provided to us in Jesus, because we can do it. I can do that law. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be righteous. 
And it ends up making us incredibly self-righteous. And that is the most dangerous thing about a traditional culture like ours, about a conservative church-going culture like ours. We forget that we are saved all by grace. And our obedience is all because of what Jesus has done. It is not to get God to like us more. And I would dare say that the false religion of our town, of our region, is very much like what it was in Ephesus. Except in Ephesus, you had the pagans preaching a false doctrine of the worship of Artemis, or a blend of Christianity and pagan idol worship. Here, it is not called paganism. It's actually called Christianity. But what you get is just as pernicious because it's this incipient moralism that says that if you obey the law, then God will love you more. That's how you get in by your performance. Do you see how out-and-out paganism and out-and-out religious conservatism can actually both miss the gospel? Does that make sense? And so we have to be very, very careful that we have men, brothers, who love us enough as a congregation to always point us back to the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and then call us out in mission to love and serve the world. Without Christ-centered, gospel-centered messages, you will grow more self-righteous because that is our nature. And why you come to Trinity on Sundays to be able to hear Jesus remind you I have called you to be mine. Those of you who trust in me by faith alone are mine. And I'm making you more and more together with your community like the new humanity that I desire Christians to be. A new countercultural community that is for the common good and the flourishing of the world. That's why we're here. It is more than just helping our kids have morals. It is helping us be the hands and feet of Jesus for our world. Brian Chapel, who was the president of Covenant Seminary, once said, the cross stands both as God's ultimate warning of the consequences of sin and as the greatest expression of his love for sinners. There is a vicious cycle of speculation, wondering if you've done enough, of arrogance and self-righteousness, of greed, that tends to happen in very religious conservative areas like ours. And we have to be careful, therefore, to keep the gospel central. Speculation, self-righteousness, and arrogance, and greed, those are all things explicitly mentioned in First Peter, I mean, First Timothy, about a religion that nobody would say is Christian. But yet, subtly, we begin to do the very same thing within the church. We begin to think it all depends on us. Luther recognized the deadliness of this sort of theology, and he knew that any counsel that turns us back to ourselves for assurance is no assurance at all. To put the matter bluntly, Luther knew that the death and resurrection of Christ in our stead was strong enough in its effects even to save Christians. What I mean is that as a believer, you need the gospel just as much as you needed it the first day you believed. So, if the call of the elders is to help people recognize 
the false gospels that are out there and to hold our feet to the fire, to keep us on mission, to be Christ's cruciform, cross-shaped new community for the common good in this city, then therefore, what do we look for when we confirm these men? Well, just after Paul talks about order and worship in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, then he goes to talk about what qualities you look for in your elders and your deacons. And so I'm just going to rattle these off, make a couple comments, and then we're done. First of all, Paul says that they must have an internal call. That is, they must have a desire to be an elder or a deacon without coercion. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. It was a proverb around the town. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He desires a good thing, it literally says in Greek. So you must have this internal call. It must not be coerced. But you need to be nominated by the community because you need the external call as well. How do these men know that it's really from the Holy Spirit and not last night's bean burrito that they're called to be elders and deacons of the church? The community affirms that that is true. People indwelt by the Holy Spirit who confirm the Spirit's call on their life. And the general characteristics they look for are these 15 things. They're not exhaustive, but they are the general characteristics that you look for. Because if these men have to convince you that they're to be elders and deacons, they're not called to be elders and deacons. It's like Margaret Thatcher one time said, being powerful is like being a woman. If I have to convince you that I am one, then I'm really not that powerful. It's the same thing with elders and deacons. If they have to convince you that they're an elder, they're not. Because the community affirms them. They've seen these things worked out in their life. So therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Which means that, of course, they're sinners. It just means that their past is not going to come back and haunt them or the community. That's what being above reproach means. It means that they have made things right. Number two, it says they must be the husband of one wife. That means he's faithful to his wife and he's not a serial polygamist. That means if he's divorced, he's divorced on biblical grounds, willful desertion or adultery. Number three, he's sober-minded. That means he's clear-headed. He's steady. He's emotionally aware. Number four, he's prudent which just means he's sensible and he's self-controlled. Five, he's respectable. It means he's a class act. He's modest. Six, he's, hosp- he's hospitable. You've heard of the word xenophobic, which means you don't like others. You're afraid of others, people who are different than you. The word here is that you are a lover of others. You're xenophilic you love others they're different than you you're able to teach he's competent to explain and defend God's word he's not a drunkard he's not given to drunkenness or illegal drug use nine he's not violent which means he's patient he's gentle ten which means he's kind he's not quarrelsome he doesn't look for a fight Twelve, he's not a lover of money. He is content with what he has. He's not greedy. 
13, he manages his own household well. If he's married and he has children, everybody at home respects dad. Doesn't mean he has a perfect family. Doesn't mean that there aren't oftentimes problems with his children or with his family or, of course, with himself. He's a sinner. But it means they respect him. 14, he's not a recent convert. Now, the point of this one is that he doesn't become puffed up with conceit. This is the judgment call. It's a judgment call based upon the evidence that there is no conceit in his life. It's not like you become qualified to be an elder once you've been a Christian for three years. You don't know. There's no number. It's a judgment call. Is he conceited? 15, he's, well, he's thought of well by outsiders. Does he pay his bills? Does he have a good re- reputation with unbelievers with whom he conducts business? And likewise, for deacons, we have 12 qualities given for them. I'm saying these out to you out loud because I need you to hear them because you're looking at an insert in your bulletin to nominate these men to be elders and deacons. Do these men fit these qualities? They need to know if you think they do or not. For deacons, he lists 12 qualities. Again, these are general. They're not exhaustive. He's dignified, which means he's worthy of respect. He's not double-tongued. In other words, he's not someone who's going to run off and say something that was told to him in confidence. He's not two-faced. He's a man of integrity. He's not addicted to much wine, the same as the elders. He's not greedy for dishonest gain. He pays all all of his taxes, for example. He doesn't uh, try to rip people off or take advantage of them. He's fair. He holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. means he lives out the gospel not to earn it, but he lives out what he believes because of what Jesus Christ has done for him. He is tested and blameless. I mean, the best case for this is who in our congregation hasn't grown cynical after doing setup for like a year and a half, right? He's been tested and he's found blameless. Are they cheerful even though we continue to have to set up on Sunday morning? And their wives or those women who assist the deacons. What about them? Well, they're dignified. They're worthy of respect. They're not slanderers. They use words to encourage others, not break them down. They're sober-minded. The women are emotionally mature and they're steady. The wives, or the women who help assist the deacons, are faithful in all things. That means they're completely trustworthy. And then Paul goes back to the deacons for two last characteristics. That they're the husband of one wife, which means that they're faithful to their wife. Just as we've said, they're not a serial poly- serial polygamist means, right, that you somehow either you have more than one wife, very, very rare, or that you divorced your wife for a, an unbiblical reason. You've married another, which would be to have two wives in a sense, though not at the same time. Twelve, he manages his children and his household well, just as the elders. Listen. Putting these men on a pedestal, putting your staff, your pa- on a, it is the beginning of their downfall. They are no different from you. They are sinners saved by grace. Their authority comes from their call, not their nature. In other words, they are called by the Spirit to lead the church, but it, by nature, they are no different from anybody else in this room. But these instructions matter because their life must reflect what the church is all about. And they must set the bar for the rest of the congregation. And they must be men whom you respect and love. And by the way, did you hear anything in those requirements about age? You didn't. They do not need to have gray hair, although one day very soon after they become elders, they'll probably all grow gray hair. 
They don't have to, in other words, to serve as elders, but they have to fit those qualities, those characteristics. Spiritual maturity is not always equivalent to age. On the one hand, we cannot say, but our elders are more spiritual than me. They get the gospel in ways that I never will. You can't idealize them. And on the other hand, you can't say, well, you know, they're sinners just like we are. It doesn't really matter how they live their life. You know, forgiveness is a Christian virtue. Just just forgive. You can't relativize them either. You can't idolize them or relativize them. You have to call the men based upon the gospel truth that they are Christ's sons called to shepherd his church. And you confirm that call by the Holy Spirit in your nomination of elders. Their lives show the fruit of what it means to be rooted in Christ alone, not their performance or their moral rectitude, but because of Christ's performance for them. Listen, we may never understand, we may never understand fully how a car works, but you can understand what's under the hood of Christ's church. And we, even in our government of our church, are as transparent as possible. You have places you can appeal to if you disagree with the elders. It's called the Presbytery. It's the area of churches from Waco, Texas, up to us. And at the same time, the elders have a place where they can go if they feel like the congregation is abusing them. So therefore, we can hold each other accountable to love each other well because we're not always trying to please people. We're centering our lives on the gospel, and we agree to do that from the very, very beginning. So as you pray for these men, I pray the session, the temporary session, the people who we have borrowed from other churches to rule over us right now, Paul Delorier, Bill Boyd, and myself, we commend all six of these men under nomination form to you. And we pray that you'll check all six men's names off the box, and you'll leave your nomination form in the Trinity box just above the trash can as you leave. Make sure you put it above the trash can when you leave. We commend all six to you and pray that you'll do that, but you need to call them on your own accord, assess your hearts, ask the Spirit to give you wisdom as you nominate these men to lead Christ's church, all right? Brothers and sisters, know Christ loves you so much that he does not want you to perform for him. He performed for you on the cross, and he loves you enough to accomplish everything the law demands so that you might be able to read the law in a way that frees you up because it shows you your own inadequacy and shows you how much Jesus has done for you. And then it calls us to be his countercultural community for the common good. Lord, would you help us, we pray, to stay close to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.